You're listening to the Bonfire Podcast, fanning the flames of the gospel to the ends of the world. Come on, let's dive into the Word. Well, welcome to the Bonfire Podcast, everyone. We are glad that you are joining us for another episode. If this is your first time listening, we want to say welcome and thank you for stopping in. We'd encourage you to stay a while, listen to what we have to say. Maybe go back and listen to some of our older content. And if you like what you're hearing, uh, we'd ask that you would become a subscriber. Uh, you know, Dad, I was thinking about it. Uh, that's a way that you can join the Bonefire family, right? Is right. become a subscriber, download our content on a regular basis, and uh, you will be able to uh, keep up with all of our new episodes that we release. We release new episodes, or at least try to each each week at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, so by being a subscriber, you will get those each week when those release. I do want to encourage you, if you have not done so already, love to hear from our listeners. Uh, like to have you send us an email. Uh, you can send that to bonefireministries at gmail.com. Just drop us a quick note. And uh, if you have a question or prayer request, feel free to put that in there. We'd be glad to uh, pray with you or to respond uh, maybe to the question that you have, and then love to give you a shout out on our um, episode. So, Dad, I did run into a couple podcast listeners this week just by chance, and so I just want to give a shout out to them. So I met uh, a young man by the name of Dustin Reed, who says he's been listening to podcasts. So, Dustin, thank you. Also uh, received a text message from a person I used to work with, said that he was now a subscriber, and his name's Kyle Porter. So, Kyle, thank you for listening in. That's right. Hope that you enjoy uh, the podcast. Again, we'd love to give some more shout outs uh, to our listeners, so feel free to reach out to us. Well, Dad, we're going to continue our study series entitled Dear Church on this episode. And uh, this series, we've been studying the seven short letters from Jesus to seven literal churches in Asia Minor that can be found in the book of Revelation. And thus far, we've covered two letters. The first letter was the letter to the church at Ephesus, the loveless church. And the second was the letter to the church in Smyrna, the persecuted church. So if you have not listened to those, I would encourage you to go check those out. Uh, but tonight we're going to move on and look at our, our third uh, letter. We're going to turn our attention there. And that's the letter to the church at Pergamos or, or Pergamon. Uh, you can see that um, pronounced or, or spelled either way as you're looking at uh, biblical literature. But Pergamos was the most northern of the seven cities that we're going to be discussing in this uh, study. And it was an illustrious and religious city uh, of wealth and fashion. And unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, it was not a city of commerce. Uh, in fact, Pergamos was known chiefly for its religion and its culture, its fine arts. Um, there, one could find a temple erected in honor of many gods. In fact, Pergamos was the center of worship for uh, Dionysus, Zeus, and many other pagan gods. Now, you can tell from this brief background that this church uh, and these believers were in a tough environment, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as this episode goes on. And as we discussed in our last episode, uh, Jesus uses a different introduction of himself in each of the seven letters. So I want us to take a look at how he introduces himself to this church at Pergamos. If you got your Bible, we're going to go ahead and jump into the scripture. Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. And I want us to look at how Jesus starts this letter. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay, this depiction of Jesus holding a sharp two-edged sword refers to the Lord's readiness to bring judgment. Jesus 
comes to the church at Pergamos in judgment, and he is ready to wield his sword appropriately. So knowing that Jesus is prepared to judgment, let's look at and see what he has to say to this church. As we look at the letter, we'll be using a similar outline that we've used in our other podcast. We're going to look at the approval, the accusation, the appeal, and then finally we're going to talk about some of the application of, uh, that we have for this letter in our world today. So looking first at the approval, again, we're in Revelation chapter 2. Let's look at verse 13 here, and it says, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you there where Satan dwells. And so uh, this we see is an, an approval coming here to these these uh, Christians, this congregation here at Pergamos. Uh, Jesus first approves their works. He says, I know your works. And then I was thinking about it, that that's the same statement that was said uh, to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works. And of course, uh, Ephesus was a very busy a working church. And so for Jesus to make note of their works, I feel like the church at Pergamos must have been a busy church and active in the ministry for Christ. And not only that, Jesus says that he knows where they dwell and live and the evil that they were up against. Now, just a moment ago, I gave you a brief introduction to this city of Pergamos, and I told you about the culture and the environment this church was located in. Pergamos was a worldly city. It was a wicked city. It was a city of sin. Jesus flat out called the place the, the, the place where Satan's throne is. And that just goes to show you just how bad it was for him to give that description of this city. But Jesus doesn't stop his approval there. Despite living in a difficult place surrounded by pagan influences, Jesus recognized that these believers held fast to his name. No doubt the church, uh, this church, just like the church at Smyrna that we covered on last week's episode, uh, these Christians had faced and suffered persecution uh, for the name of Christ, yet they held fast to the name of Jesus Christ, not willing to shy away from worship or service in Jesus' name. And Dad, I was just thinking about that, how how bold that was. You could you, you could describe this as boldness in Christ that these uh, Pemergos Christians had. In verse 13, Jesus goes on to say that the church was faithful even in the face of death. Jesus speaks of one Christian that was there in Pergamos named Antipas. And uh, Jesus refers to him as a faithful witness And ultimately, this faithful witness was killed for his Christian beliefs. Now, I went back to that and tried to find out some additional information about Antipas, but really, uh, secular history doesn't record anything about him. There's some church history that says uh, that he was a physician and that he was uh, a promoter of Christianity, but the local physician guild uh, really didn't like the fact that he was promoting Christianity over being uh, able to say that Caesar is Lord, which we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, were the ones that decided that he needed to be put to death. Mm-hmm. And so is, if that's exactly true, we don't know. Again, that's kind of church history uh, that's been passed down through the years. But obviously Jesus knew of this person, knew of this Antipas who was killed uh, for his beliefs in Christ. And again, he called him a faithful witness. So he was a a person who believed in Christ. Yeah, uh, thinking about Antipas, 
I remember uh, studying this some time ago. Like you said, we don't know much about him from the scriptures, but legend is that he was roasted to death in a brazen bull. And this killing of Antipas was was done in Pergamos, and it was done among other Christians. In other words, this is a lesson to you. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's what I was thinking, Dad. I, you know, I, I didn't know for sure, but I felt like uh, that Antipas may have been killed as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and said, hey, this watch, this is what we're going to do to this person. And so uh, trying to inter- uh, intimidate these Christians to get them to uh, surrender what they believed in or, or, or to back down in their faith, but these Christians were unwilling to surrender their faith in Christ. You know, Dad, at this point, when you think about the church at Pergamos, it sounds like this is an outstanding congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the church was not a perfect church. Uh, and in fact, Jesus took note of the fact that they were not a, a perfect church. Dad, share with us the accusation that Jesus issued to this church. All right, right. Starting in verse 14 and 15, we see the accusation that he made. Well, instead of being swept away by a wave of persecution, this church was in danger of drifting into worldliness and carnality. And this is the same problem that a lot of churches are facing today. Now, it can be summed up by the word detente. Now, detente means an easing of friction between two parties. It means compromising. The dedicated born-again believers that Jesus talked about that would not yield to persecution outside the church were compromising with worldly false teachers that had crept inside the church. It wasn't that they were altogether accepting the beliefs of these false teachers, but by tolerating those that they ought to expel, they had come to a compromise with error. Now, in verses 14 and 15, our Lord mentions two evil doctrines which these false teachers inside the church at Pergamos held to. Now, one of these evil doctrines was the doctrine of Balaam. Now, let's look at verse 14. Jesus said, But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Well, to get an understanding of who Balaam and Balak were, we look over to the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. Now, Moses had led the people out of Egypt, and at one time during their journey, they camped near the Moabite and Midianite people. Now, the Moabites and Midianites were afraid of the Israelites because the Israelites had just defeated the Ammonites or Amorites. Now, concerned about what to do, the Moabites and the Midianites decided to stick together. Now, Balak, the king of the Moabites, he sent a group of representatives with money to hire Balaam, a well-known Gentile prophet, to curse the Israelite people. Even though Balaam was a Gentile prophet, he knew the God of the Israelites well. As a matter of fact, he had a remarkable insight into God's character. Well, the second time the representatives came to hire Balaam to curse the people, Balaam went with them. 
Each time Balaam set out to curse Israel, God put into Balaam's mouth words of blessing for Israel. And Balaam, being afraid to not speak what God put in his mouth, spoke these words of blessing. Now, Balaam set out to put a curse on Israel three times altogether, and each time a blessing rather than a curse came from his mouth. Perhaps because Balaam feared the rising wrath of Balak and his possible execution for not being able to curse Israel, Balaam came up with a devilish suggestion that if you cannot curse the people, then corrupt them. Balaam, knowing the righteous nature of God, the God of the Israelites, knew that God would not tolerate his people doing evil. Balaam's suggestion must have been for Balak's people, the Moabites and the neighboring Midianites, to make friends with the Israelites, enticing them, especially their men, to come to feast. But the feast would not be in honor of of God, but would be in honor of the false god Baal, the Moabite god. The Moabite women would entice the Israelite men to come and join in and Afterwards, they would seduce them into engaging in sexual immorality, probably on or around uh, the Baal places of worship. Balaam taught that if you corrupt the Israelites, then God would correct them. And if God corrects them, then their numbers would diminish and their threat to the Moabite and Midianite kingdoms would decrease. Balaam knew what he was talking about. Some of the Israelites were corrupted by the carnal pleasures offered by the Moabites. This made God angry. Those guilty of idolatry and immorality in the camp of Israel were killed. The total number of people killed was 24,000 people. In verse 14, Jesus was saying to the dedicated Christians at Pergamos that they were holding fellowship with people who uh, posed the threat of corrupting them just as Balak set out to corrupt Israel many years before them. In other words, there was a group of people in the church at Pergamos that was teaching that it was all right to go along with the crowd. Now, back during the time, Jesus dictated this letter, premarital sex and adultery was not looked down upon by the common people. Rather, it was encouraged. The Greeks and Romans looked upon prostitution as needful and an acceptable way of life. Demosthenes, the great Roman orator, summed up the debased moral code of the time by saying, we have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. Cicero, another great Roman orator, wrote concerning the promiscuousness of the time of the Romans. He said, When was such promiscuousness ever denied? When was it that this which is now lawful was not lawful? Cicero couldn't even think of a time when illicit sexual affairs wasn't the norm for the average man. Those holding to the doctrine of Balaam taught that since everybody else was having either premarital sex or engaging in adultery, then Christians shouldn't cut themselves off from society. They should just, hey, join on in. And along these same lines, 
They taught that if a Christian receives a dinner invitation from one of his friends to come to the temple of Zeus or Athena for a feast, then they should go so as to not be seen as unsociable. At the temples of the false gods, a worshiper would offer sacrifice on the altar to the god, but only a small portion would be burned in the offering to the god. The rest would be divided with some of the meat going to the priest and some, perhaps the larger portion, going to the worshiper. Following would be a communal meal in honor of the god worshiped, where the worshiper would invite many guests. But fellowshipping around the altar of a false god in the Lord Jesus' eyes is idolatry. And God detests idolatry as much as he does immorality. To do either is a sin against God. Well, the dedicated Christians at Pergamos were permitting a stumbling block to be set up among them by allowing the group that taught that it was all right to go along with the crowd to stay in their fellowship. Today, it would surprise you to know the number of people in our churches who have the persuasion that we ought to go along with the crowd. Now, we've looked at the evil doctrine of Balaam that was tolerated in the church. Now, look at verse 15. It points out a second evil doctrine tolerated in the church, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Bible says, thus, Jesus speaking, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, we first heard of the Nicolaitans in Christ's letter to the Ephesian Christians in, a, in Revelation 2, 6, where the Lord says he hates their deeds. The deeds of the Nicolaitans was not accepted in Ephesus, but they were tolerated in Pergamos. Not a lot is known about the Nicolaitans, but in the Bible, the meaning of a name oftentimes provides a good picture of the person. The word Nicolaitan is composed of two simple Greek words. The first word is Nike, and it means victory. Now today, one can go into any trophy shop and buy a Nike, a wing victory, and give it to a contestant who is victorious, who has conquered or excelled in a game. Today, there's also a brand of shoes called Nike. Uh, the Greek name for victory uh, is a great name for running shoes. The other Greek word that helps to make up the word Nicolaitan is laos. Laos is the simple word for people. The word laity is derived from the Greek word laos. Now, when the words Nike and laos are put together, we have the English Nicholas or Nicolaitan. The word refers to a group or to a class who exalts themselves above the people. They are oppressors and conquerors of the people. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans has to do with the rising up of a class of people taking the role of priest in the church, a role that is not scriptural. They teach that only this priestly class of people has the earthly privilege of pronouncing the forgiveness of sins on people on behalf of Jesus. Thus, everyone seeking the forgiveness of sins would have to come to them. The Nicolaitans teach that this priestly class alone has the authority to read and interpret the Bible as well as God's will to the people. Thus, the word of God is to be taken out of the hands of the average churchman and given only to this priestly class. Man does not have the freedom to choose what he thinks the Bible teaches. This priestly class also takes away the church's duty to judge false beliefs and excommunicate and judges and excommunicates to please themselves. It makes sense 
by this priestly class restricting who can read the Bible and who can be forgiven of sins and who was to be excommunicated, that they would certainly have victory over the average Christian and they would lord over the people. It's sad to think, but this false doctrine that was tolerated by the dedicated Christians in Pergamos eventually became accepted a few hundred years later by the organized churches near Rome. Today, Roman Catholic priests and the Pope himself still holds this authority over the people. What was tolerated in Pergamos was just the shadow of things to come. And friend, we don't need priests today to do these things mentioned. When Jesus died, the veil separating man from the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. And any man can go to God for himself anywhere. 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter speaking to all Christians calls them an holy priesthood. To call your attention to the problem in the church at Pergamos again, the church, for the most part, believed the right things, but they tolerated some in their midst who held to the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. They tolerated false teaching. Here was their detente. God never intended for the church to tolerate evil. As a church... We shouldn't tolerate error in doctrine or in deed. It has been said, actions speak louder than words. If a person in our church isn't living right and is leading other people astray, and they're unrepentant about it, we shouldn't tolerate their influence any more than we would tolerate someone spreading false doctrines by word of mouth. When we tolerate people who don't believe right or live right, we're hindering instead of helping the ministry of the church. That's exactly right, Dad. And, you know, after issuing this accusation to the church at Pergamos, uh, Jesus gives the appeal. And so I want us to look here at the appeal, and that's going to start at verse 16. Uh, Let's read that together. It says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we see here, Dad, in this uh, appeal that, that Jesus gives to the church at Pergamos, Jesus issues a clarion call for them to repent of their sins. All right, and this this was clearly a sin, Dad. You laid it out just just perfectly. That yeah, they had the right uh, doctrine when it comes to the belief in Jesus and salvation, but they had added in these false teachings and and were compromising their beliefs and letting things slide, and that is sin to God. Right. God wants us to be separate. He wants us to be holy, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in just a minute here. And He says this is sinful, and I want you to repent for the sin. You see, our Lord hates. A religious and moral, uh, religious or moral compromise. He calls his people to live differently. As I said, Jesus notes that judgment would take place if the church at, at Pergamos uh, did not repent. In verse sixteen, he says, "I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." This judgment was going to be against the Nicolaitans. It would also be against those who were teaching the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, and he would destroy them, but also would be their followers, those from the congregation of Pergamos. As Jesus closes his letter, he gives a final promise to those who overcome. 
Uh, he, he says that you're going to receive three blessings. He says, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now, the exact interpretation of these uh, are disputed among Bible scholars. However, uh, pretty much all agree that these three blessings must concern a believer's victorious reign with Christ. And Dad, as I was studying and trying to understand, read from different authors, I liked uh, best what I, I saw John Phillips said, commentator John Phillips said about these blessings. He says, the three uh, marks of heresy at Pergamos were idolatry, immorality, and infidelity. The overcomer who kept himself from all three would be rewarded with a reward that would commiserate with his conduct. To those who kept themselves from idolatry and refused to eat the sacrifices made to idols, the Lord gave hidden manna to eat. To those who kept themselves from immorality, the Lord gave a white stone, a symbol of purity. And to those who kept themselves from infidelity, the Lord gave a new name, knowledge of himself that no one else can share. And so I thought that was a pretty good mm -hmm. uh, interpretation of what's there. Obviously, we can see, uh, read into this a little bit more. You know, manna obviously is an Old Testament reference. When the children of Israel were out in the desert and they had no food, God sent manna to them. And that was their daily supply of what they needed. Uh, manna is, is also in the Bible reference to Christ himself. Right. And so uh, we, we can see that those who ever come are going to have uh, Christ given to them, a relationship with Christ that was going to mm -hmm. be given to them. And then that white stone, Dad, as I was reading more about it, too, uh, it, it seems in, in this time of which this was written, a white stone oftentimes was placed um, in a vessel to symbolize a verdict. So if someone was found not guilty or mm -hmm. they were forgiven uh, for whatever wrongdoing they were done, a white stone would be dropped into a vessel. And so again, right. uh, gives a good picture of, of salvation and what Jesus does uh, to those who are covered by his blood, given righteousness and purity from him. And then lastly, the new name. You know, when I saw new name, I, I went immediately to a new creature, right? We are all a new cr a creature, a new creation in Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and we are made different. The old man has passed away. The new man is there. And so I saw a good relationship there. So those are the rewards that are said are given to those who overcome, those who heeded uh, Jesus's call to repent. And those who didn't, it's very clear that he was going to bring judgment upon them, and that judgment would be swift and it would be fierce with the sword uh, from his mouth. Now, Dad, as, a, as we were going through this, uh, or I was studying it, I really, I read this passage over and over again, and I kept, I just felt like God was saying, hey, you know, wake up, this, this is applicable to today, which Bye. we know all the letters are applicable to today. But for some reason, this one just stuck with me that there is a major application uh, for this letter today. And so for the rest of our time here, I want to discuss this application mm -hmm. uh, that, that can be made uh, for this letter. And so if you really boil it down to uh, the situation here, again, we have a church who had good doctrine. They believed in Jesus. Right. There wasn't a problem with their uh, belief in the Savior, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus Christ. It was the other stuff that mm -hmm. got in the way. Right. And Jesus' main issue with this church was the fact that they didn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. They didn't keep themselves from it. Right. They didn't excommunicate it. 
they didn't separate themselves from that. Mm-hmm. And as, as the more I thought about this, I, I came back to a, a term that doesn't get used much anymore, and that's biblical separation and ecclesiastical separation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so for our listeners, those may be terms that you're, you're not too familiar with. Maybe you are. But biblical separation refers typically to an individual and says, based off of the what the Word says, the Word of God says, mm-hmm. I'm going to live my life different. I'm going to be separate from the world. I'm not going to engage mm-hmm. in worldliness. I'm going to live myself differently. The Bible all throughout Scripture talks about how believers, you know, should not be in the world uh, or, or of the world. You know, it it's, it's, it's re- recurs over and over again. Uh, looking at this verse I've got here in front of me, Dad, it says, Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. For what do righteous have with wickedness in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? Mm-hmm. And what does the believer have in common with the unbeliever? And what does uh, agreement is between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so that that is to say that there shouldn't be this mixing of worldliness with uh, the things that are holy. And the word holy itself means to be separate and to be uh, set, set apart. And then the term ecclesiastical separation, that typically gets used at a larger sense to a church. And in this case, the church at Pergamos failed in their ecclesiastical separation. They failed right. to separate themselves as believers and what they were going to base their belief on. Um, and they allow these false teachings to come in. And so these two things I'm, I've been convicted by is that we don't do enough of in today's society, both in our personal Christian walks and in our churches. We failed to separate ourselves from the the evil and the worldliness around us. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking, Matt, and I had to look up the Scripture verse because I knew it was in the Bible and I'd heard it, and I wanted to accurately uh, point it out to you. Over in Galatians chapter uh, 5, excuse me, over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, uh, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Mm. Uh, that is a metaphor that Paul uses to compare the effects of false teaching, of which we're talking about that was tolerated in this church at Pergamos, uh, that compares the effects of false teaching in the church to the results of yeast and bread dough. Just as a small amount of yeast will make a whole loaf of bread rise, a little bit of liberal or legalistic teaching, false doctrine, in other words, will spread quickly, infiltrating the hearts and minds of individual believers until the entire church is contaminated. That's exactly right. And so many of our listeners may be wondering, well, what exactly are you trying to, to, to say? What are you trying to get to? And and so I just began to make a list of, of things that I feel like is is uh, the Pergamos of today, the the issues that are coming in the church today. And I just want to share a few of these uh, with you. The first thing that came on my list was mystic and New Age teachings creeping into mainstream Christianity. Right. And many of you may say, well, that's just crazy. That, that will never happen. But I got some data I want to share with you. The Pew Research Center did a study back in 2018. So this data is a little bit dated now. And I know that Pew is a, you know, a liberal left-wing uh, survey organization. But nonetheless, their uh, survey in total, the headline reads, Six in Ten Christians 
hold at least one new age belief. That's 60% That's a lot. of Christians. And I want you just to listen to these he- headings here. Um, of those uh, saying that they are Christians, 40, sorry, 37% said that they believe that spiritual energy can be located in physical things. That there could be an energy, a positive or negative energy, say, in this chair that's sitting over here. Hey, I got something to, to throw out here. You remember years ago we went to the Baptist Convention in Phoenix, Arizona, and yeah. and uh, we looked at it as an opportunity to go ahead of time on our own, you know, money to take a little bit of vacation, and so we went to Sedona, Arizona, and we went to go view Cathedral Rock. That's you know the little tourist attraction there down a little dirt road. You know, it's all right, and so we came back to the little. The little village there, Sedona, that little town that's just mainly a tourist trap. And uh, I enjoyed it. Now, if you listening, you from Arizona, I, I appreciate your state. I think it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But we were in this little T-shirt store, and and uh, and this man uh, that was visiting, he was looking at the T-shirts that showed Cathedral Rock, which is like two rocks jutting up from the ground, you know, and like a little small mountains. And and the one's larger than the other. And the, the lady selling the shirt said, yeah, you know, something about the male and the female aura. And so... Uh, he went out the shop, and so I had to bite my lip, and I went up to this woman, and I said, ma'am, which part of that rock's male, which part's female? <laughs> and she grinned like she said, yeah, you know, uh, she knew what she was doing, trying to just, just throw it, throw the sales pitch, you know. That's right. And and that was so weird. That area was full of new age, and it's in the church, like you're saying, That's like right. it, like uh, energy in a rock. That's right. Energy in a rock. Listen to this. Forty uh, percent of professing Christians uh, believe in psychics, mm-hmm. the ability for someone to talk to the, you know the other side or you know talk to someone who's who's passed on. Um, Thirty, twenty nine percent believe in reincarnation. Of Christians now believe in reincarnation that you can come back as something else in a second life. Now, yeah. obviously, as Christians, we believe in e- eternal life and uh, we believe in a second life with Christ, mm-hmm. but not coming back as you know, you know, your aunt's not going to come back as a cow or anything like that. That's that's not the case. And then belief in astrology: twenty six percent of professing Christians believe that there are signs in the stars and the moon that can tell them about their life. Right. Now, the most interesting thing, Dad, that I found about this study is that they compared it against uh, folks who professed not to be Christians. They either were atheist, agnostic, or they said they don't believe in anything at all. Right. Okay? The percentages were exactly the same between the Christian group and the non-Christian group. Right. Roughly 6 in 10 of those that said they don't believe in God also have these same new age beliefs. So that's that's interesting to me that we're seeing this creep in to Christianity. And now you may be saying to yourself, well, I don't believe it. I don't see it. And so let me give you a couple others here um, that are uh, a couple other teachings that are commonly, uh, com- commonly uh, coming over into Christianity. Uh, these are five uh, new age beliefs that uh, churches and Christians are adopting at a fast rate. This is an article published by a Christian, uh, top leading Christian publication here. And uh, first one up is the law of attraction. Mm. 
The law of attraction basically says if you put, again, good energy out, you put good things out, good things are going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. That's the law of attraction. That sounds like uh, Joel Osteen. <laughs> very, very true. Very true. Again, like attracts like, that law of attraction. Uh, the second thing they listen here is uh, this belief that you should follow your heart and that you should follow your kind of true, there's a true north. There's a truth that's true to just you. Mm. That's something that's being picked up in, in Christianity today in some, some areas. Oh, Joel Osteen, destiny. Yes. Uh, third one here, we are little, little or many gods. Uh, I've, I've heard that on television. I'm, that is just crazy, crazy. Uh, uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network, and under the old leaders, uh, i tell you, that's awful. That's right. And so th- this belief is being pushed uh, by some notable folks, uh, Kenneth Copeland, uh, believes that we have uh, a godhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel Osteen has been noted to to talk of us being gods. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, and then of course our friends out at Bethel uh, Church out there in Calif- Redding, California. Um, Pastor Bill out there, right. of course, believes in that we become gods and uh, our ability to have a godlike features. And then next one on the list here is oneness. Uh, oneness is is basically that you need to center yourself one with nature, one with the environment, one with God's creation, mm-hmm. and that only life can be correct when you're at one oh. with those things around you. So yoga in the church. And yoga in the church. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. You, you hit on one of the things I was going to talk about. Um, and then lastly here, it says all roads lead to heaven. You know, that's, that is a, a new age teaching. Um, it is a, a lie straight out of hell, uh, but that all religions are the same, that all uh, religions are basically pointing to the same God. It's just different ways of expressing God, that the Buddhist God is is the same as the, the Hindu God, is the same as the Muslim God, and is the same as the Christian God. That's what that teaching is, and obviously that is a false teaching, but that is something that is being pushed by uh, a new age belief that's being pushed into Christianity. And if you don't think that's true, I encourage you just to look at any one of these that I've listed here, do a little research, uh, do some online uh, research and searching for this. And I promise you, it won't take you five minutes. You'll find examples of each of these happening in churches uh, in in the area. Mm-hmm. If that's not enough for you, Dad, you mentioned one thing I was going to talk about. There's an alarming uh, trend of churches that are adopting yoga and meditation. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe strongly that we should meditate on God's Word. Right. And by meditate on God's Word, that means we are to study it, we're to think about it, we're to uh, read it over and over again and let let that sit in our mind and say, you know, God, what is what are you trying to say through the, these words here mm-hmm. uh, to me? That's meditation. But I'm talking about the, the meditation where, again, you have to find your oneness with the world. Right. And a lot of churches are adopting uh, meditation and then yoga. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm fine... With with people wanting to do health and fitness and wanting to, to stretch and all that, that's all fine, great, and good. But the premise of yoga is based out of new age religion teaching. Right. And it's, it's creeping into our church. And then the last thing that's become very popular that I've taken note of is the Enneagram. And uh, many of you who are listening, you probably have heard of that. It's, uh, it's, it's spun as a personality test that helps you identify what type of personality you are so that you know that your uh, positive and negative traits. And you can also, once you know what someone else's Enneagram is, that you know how to interact with them. And uh, I mean, it is catching on fire. You're seeing church 
churches all over the place planting Enneagram retreats where they'll take you out into the woods and you can uh, find your Enneagram and become one with nature yeah. uh, in this uh, so-called Christian retreat. Um, that's very popular, and that's a new age, a mystic type teaching that's creeping into the church. Well, that's just one thing Satan is is uh, come up with and introducing into the church to take people away from studying the Word of God. That's right. That can change your life, and uh, to something foolish like that. That's right. And in all cases, Dad, all of these things that I'm listing and that that you can see examples of, many of you may have these happening in your own church. Um, what you'll find is they still believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And they'll still preach and teach about Jesus, but it's and this other stuff, which is exactly what was happening happening at the church at Pergamos. It was, yes, we believed in Jesus' name. We held to his Jesus' name. We held our faith even in the sight of persecution, but we added all this other stuff. Right. And we were doing compromising our beliefs and doing things that were going against God's will and his word by doing this idolatry and the sexual immorality and, and, and the false teaching that was occurring there. Just same, like I said, a little leaven leavens to hold up. It's dangerous. That's right. That's right. Um, one more thing that I'll add just from this New Age mystic stuff, because I, I really didn't realize how prevalent it was until I started looking for it. Um, again, our, our, our friends out at Bethel Church out in Redding, California, uh, they have created a whole school of mystic religious religion teaching. And at that school, you can go and you can learn how to be a psychic. You can learn how to use um, what they're calling a Christian version of tarot cards, of being able to kind of read uh, cards and tell what someone's future is going to be or what the future is going to hold for them, of how to... um, how to uh, engage with spirits mm-hmm. and how to to channel and uh, spirits in and bring in different energies. Uh, and this is a Christian church, and many of us are singing their music in our churches on a Sunday Sunday morning. Well, well, we say Christian with quotes, around. Christian with air quotes. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. The, professing to be a Christian right. church, um, and and they're engaged in this this type of activity. And so, I just see that as a as a major compromise that's happening in in our church today. Another one that I had on my list here, Dad, is the ecumenical alignment. Mm-hmm. And so ecumenical alignment, that this is, for some reason, our churches, our Christian churches and our Christian church leaders um, have decided that we need to flock to Rome mm-hmm. and that we need to um, align ourselves with the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Mm-hmm. And that is nothing that we need to be getting into. Right. Uh, I, I maintain, uh, I don't want to upset anyone. There are probably some some uh, Catholics out there uh, that are Christians, but by large, I say that uh, that Catholicism and the Catholic Church is a false uh, organization. It's an occult organization, and they're mixed in with all their mystic beliefs as well. I mean, if you mm-hmm. just watch a, an average uh, service there where they're going through trying to do a you know communion or mass, uh, the rituals and all the things that they do is just it's it's bizarre and mm-hmm. it's definitely not based in scripture right what they're doing and so uh, we just see this this alignment of people trying to get in line to go uh, to the pope I know dad you've uh, preached a message recently where you were showing some notable folks that are uh, gone uh, to see the pope and hugging the pope or kissing the pope or whatever it may be um, the other thing that around this economical alignment is uh, bringing in other religions and saying mm-hmm. that you know, hey, we're we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. There's a move right now for uh, Mormons to be called Christians. They mm-hmm. want to be called Christians, and there's plenty of so-called Christians that want to say that the Mormons are Christian, but I'm here to tell you they're not. Right. That's a cult, and uh, 
and and there's just this push that all these religions are the same and that we're all on the same page and that we can coexist. One of the things that I think we may have covered in, on the podcast, I know you've covered in a message, is um, the Abrahamic family house is being right. built out in in uh, the United Arab Emirates right now. Right now, there is a property that's being developed. It has a church. Uh, a Christian church, supposedly, a um, a mosque, a Muslim mosque, and it has a Jewish synagogue all on the same property, three buildings sitting adjacent to each other, and uh, that's being spearheaded by the Pope and a lot of, uh, of other religious leaders there to, again, bring the world together in kind of this one-world religion and say, hey, we're all the same. we got to get past our differences. And there are Christian churches in our communities that are getting on board with that right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. And Dad, another one that came to mind is homosexuality. I feel like that's probably one of the most hot button issues um, of our time, as we see churches uh, caving into this and saying that homosexuality is okay, or they're trying to soften uh, the definition of what homosexuality is. I don't know how, exactly how you do that, but they're trying to, and uh, and they're just compromising on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean. I, I I think that Tim Tebow is a uh, uh, a nice Christian man, and I certainly appreciate him, you know, bringing attention to uh, the fact that uh, God's the one that's blessed him with his athletic prowess, you know, when he was a quarterback. But uh, it bothered me when he had an opportunity to go speak at First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and. The pastor there, uh, I mean, I don't think it was last week's sermon. It was, you know, at some point in time, I, I'm sure probably preaching through the books of the Bible or or just maybe he was just preaching on the, the current uh, trends and beliefs in today's time. He talked about what the Bible had to say about same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. what the Bible had to say. And, you know, um, so what we understand was that uh, Tim felt like from the folks that were guiding him and advising him and pertaining to his uh, potential career, it would not be a good thing to go down there and speak. But yet he was on the Ellen show, mm-hmm. and Ellen is a vowed lesbian. Yep. And uh, and then he went and you know had a good handshake with the Pope. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly right. So uh, take note of it. Homosexuality is is a is a big hot button issue right now in, in the church, and we're seeing people compromise left and right and saying, oh well, you know. Uh, the Bible was written a long time ago, and and that that reference was not uh, to homosexuality like today. I, that's just crazy. It's mm-hmm. absolutely crazy uh, that we're seeing compromise in that. Last thing that I wrote down was wokeness. Uh, we did a whole episode uh, on this. I think the episode was entitled "America Awoke but Spiritually Broke," and we're seeing our Christian churches uh, pick up the doctrine of wokeness, uh, of uh, picking up a doctrine of. Uh, a social uh, justice and uh, using it in a manner that actually changes the gospel. We even have notable people, even in our, we're, uh, I hate to say it, but I guess we're, <laughs> we're in the Southern Baptist Convention and yeah. our former uh, president, uh, J.D. Greer, uh, you know, came out basically and said that we need to change the gospel message in order to reach uh, the, the black community because uh, the, right now we're presenting a white man's gospel. And it blew my mind. I'm like, no, the gospel of Jesus Christ, again, is a white man's gospel. It's a black man's gospel. It's a red man's gospel, yellow man's gospel. It's a gospel for everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're seeing this the, this wokeness that gets picked up, and that doctrine is being included in into uh, 
the churches. And again, I just see that as another attempt to where, uh, as you said, Dad, uh, Balaam, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't curse them. So he created a plan so that they would curse themselves, basically. And, right. they, and that's Satan's plan, is he wants to put in these things as distractions, as uh, deterrence from worshiping and studying uh, the Word and the truth of God. And he's just planting these seeds, and our churches are just picking them up and taking them. Yeah. And uh, and that brings me back here to the, the comment on separation. I just feel like as as individual Christians and as churches as a whole, we need to step up our game in terms of separation. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we're going to become recluses and, and completely withdraw ourselves from society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not ever suggest that. But I do think we need to be very serious and vigilant of what we let into our personal lives, mm-hmm. and that includes what we let onto our televisions and to Absolutely. our radios. Yeah, um, what we what we let our eyes see in terms of uh, what's on our phones and and uh, what we read, um, and then from our church's perspectives, we need to to get serious about God's word and 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 God's word is true; it's infallible, and it clearly states what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong, and we need to follow that. And if there's anything anything that departs from God's word, we need to call it out, mm-hmm. and we need to separate ourselves from it. Because again, that's what Jesus was mad about. Mm-hmm. You know, he, yes, he was mad at the false teaching, but he was mad at the fact that they didn't do anything about it. Right. They didn't separate themselves from it. They didn't call it a, what it was and, and, and push that out. Mm-hmm. They compromised, and they just let it exist. Mm-hmm. And then slowly, probably one by one, there was another person in that church that was affected by it. Another person, mm-hmm. another person, another person. As you read that verse, Dad, just a little leaven will spoil the whole bunch. That's right. You know, Matt, uh, in thinking about uh, what's happened in today's time, uh, music is uh, such a powerful thing, and uh, many churches today are adopting, compromising, in my opinion, by adopting uh, the world's way of doing music. I mean, uh, I see it on on television. I, I was just googling on the on the internet just a few weeks ago about the largest churches in the United States, and it seemed like in just about every one of the churches that. I was taken to to their website. Guess what they were showing uh, on like their the front page, so to speak. Especially that that website that was connecting to everything. It was their their rock and roll show. Yeah, with all the lights the and the smoke, the smoke and, and the fog and the long haired uh, guitarist swinging his head around on the right. stage. Right, and even yeah. uh, Andy Stanley's church here lately uh, playing the song by Led Zeppelin. In his church service, that was a bunch of of devil worshipers. That's right. You know, back when I was uh, growing up, I'm in my sixties. That's an old group. You know, that's right. yeah. and 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 they were just proud of it. That is nothing to be proud of. No. We uh, worship when you come to worship God. You're to worship a holy God, and you don't throw the garbage of the world, that which has been sacrificed to idols, in front of a holy God. That's right. You know, I had the interesting experience, Dad. Recently, I went to a a contemporary Christian concert. It was in in a church, local church here, and uh, 
and and just a weird experience. Um, and th- this this musician is a very talented musician, and I and I I know this musician's story, and I and I believe that uh, that he has had a true conversion experience. There's a definite change in his life from where yeah. he has been. Um, but as I was sitting there and I was watching all the theatrics of it and the smoke and the lights, and I'm in the church, and I just got to think about, it, I was like, would we be doing this if Jesus was standing here right beside me? Mm-hmm. What, is this what I would be doing? Is this what this congregation would be doing if Jesus is this worship? Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like it, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think we've we've gone a little too far, you know, in our in our uh, attempt to try and reach the world by looking like the world. And we just kind of, when that started, many people uh, said that was a slippery slope. And I think we've proven ourselves that it's a slippery slope. And a lot of us have fallen down that slope Mm -hmm. and just kept on sliding. And we've made ourselves to be so much like the world. And as you were saying, Dad, on those websites, many of them you look at, and if you took the church name off of it, you couldn't tell if that was a church service or if it was a secular rock and roll show. You Mm -hmm. couldn't tell. Right, right. You mute the lyrics. You take the thing off the take the name of the church off of it, and just either watch a video with no sound or just look at the picture, and you would be puzzled to say, "Is that a church?" Right. No. And there, we should look different than the world. We should act different than the world. We should separate ourselves from the world, uh, and we should keep ourselves in a in a pure, holy manner. That's what Jesus desired. Uh, among from among the people at Pergamos, that's what he desires for us, and it is our responsibility as Christians to maintain um, that separation, both in our personal lives and in the church as a whole. That's exactly right. Well, Dad, uh, we went a little bit long on this one because we were talking about um, kind of this application section here, uh, but I think it's well worth it. And I, I, I would love to at some point for us to have some more content like this, uh, diving in deeper uh, to some of the things that are happening in uh, the church at, at this time, because I think it's important. I think people need to understand, uh, need to see it. And uh, to be honest with you, if you're not careful, it sometimes it's so minute and it's so uh, hidden and dressed well that you don't even know it's happening mm-hmm. until one day you look up and you go, "What in the world are we doing in this sanctuary? Mm-hmm. You know, this this isn't worship. You know, this is crazy." Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to bring some of that to light. We need to call it what it is. We need to call these false doctrines what they are. These false teachings what what they are. And we need to separate ourselves from it uh, so that we don't get the um, the accusation that was given to this church at, at Pergamos, and ultimately, you know, the 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 threat there from Jesus was that he was going to come and he was going to enact judgment, and uh, that's what we we don't need to see here in uh, these times. So, uh, I would encourage you if you. Uh, listen to today's episode, think about what we've said here. Uh, Maybe go and do some of your own research. Uh, uh, You can find this stuff fairly easy now that we have the wonderful World Wide Web out there uh, to find examples of of just what I would consider to be bizarre things happening inside our churches. And that's both here in America and around the world. You'll find it in almost every every country uh, that these crazy things are going on. So I uh, thank you for listening now, and we encourage you to be back with us next week as we dive into uh, another church. Uh, when we get back with us uh, next time, we'll be talking about the corrupt church. Uh, so we've covered, again, the loveless church. We've covered the persecuted church. Today we covered the compromising church, and upcoming next is the corrupt church. So hope that you'll join us for that. We'll see you next week. Dad, will you pray us out of here? Sure. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you give us this opportunity to study 
these verses of Scripture about the church at Pergamos uh, with our podcast friends. And our Heavenly Father, by no means have we set out to offend believers, but to challenge them, Lord, to, that you might take these words, uh, Lord, of rebuke and, and challenge those, Lord, that have allowed a little bit of leaven to get in their life. And Lord, it's so easy to do. We have to watch out for everybody does, including me. So our Heavenly Father, we, we want to honor you in our lives and in our church. And we pray, O oh God, that you would guide us and direct us and help us, Lord, to keep the focus in our churches on the main thing, which is loving people and sharing the, the love of Jesus with them, reaching them for salvation, helping them to grow spiritually, and, and then, Lord, uh, and, and taking the gospel around the world. And not to forget it, Lord, our, our purpose in, in existing is not to entertain the saints, but to train the saints. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonfire Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you stream your podcast content. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes and Facebook so that others will know about the podcast. If you have a question that you'd like to see us address on an episode, feel free to email us at bonefireministries at gmail.com.